Well, how many of you can remember the last time you had an above and beyond experience? So I'm talking about a moment in your life that you walked into a situation with really low expectations, and what occurred next was above and beyond even your wildest dreams. I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe you went on a blind date or a first date, right? And you had low expectations. Your heart had been broken in the past, and you sit down across the table all right, from some beautiful woman, some charming man, and you instantly connect and have this amazing conversation. Or maybe you're in another town or another city, and you're hungry. It's late at night. And so you go to the only diner in town that's open. You're not expecting much. And what comes out next is the most amazing and delicious meal, right? These are above and beyond moments that we experience in life. I, I was trying to think of one of the most consistent places that I receive above and beyond treatment. And no doubt, I mean, my home, all right, is number one. But probably a close second for a lot of, all, for a lot of us is Chick-fil-A, right? And the, the, there's something about Chick-fil-A. Now, I moved here from Tennessee, okay? In Tennessee, we eat hot chicken in Nashville. But Chick-fil-A in Georgia, like, I, I, I mean, it was something I never experienced before. How you guys defend Chick-fil-A. And I'm, I apologize for talking about Chick-fil-A on the one day of the week you can't eat it, all right? <laughs> and I think Chick-fil-A is good, but I think the reason why we are raving crazy fans for Chick-fil-A is because every other fast food restaurant is so bad, right? The bar is so low, all right, and Chick-fil-A has raised our expectations. I mean, think about it. At every other, every other fast food restaurant, when your food is ready, they call out a number, right? But at Chick-fil-A, they call out your what? Their, your name, okay? And when you receive your food, all right, at most fast food restaurants, all right, you get your food and you say thank you, and maybe you're met with an eye roll or a you're welcome, or, a, or, or just a half-hearted stare. But at Chick-fil-A, right, what do they say? My pleasure, right? And they carry your food to you, and they check in halfway through the meal with that four-foot-long black pepper shaker, right? I mean, this is unlike any fast food restaurant. I mean, there's these legendary stories of managers and employees delivering chicken sandwiches to stranded motorists during storms, uh, uh, walking out customers with umbrellas while they're in the rain, welcoming in homeless men to feed them. The bottom line is this. I mean, Chick-fil-A goes above and beyond every other fast food restaurant. And in the same way, have you ever thought about this? Every world religion offers something, okay? There's a benefit. There's a reward. So some religions say this, that if you just follow, adhere to this religion, you can have peace with God or just a truce. Some religions say that you can have this enlightened state and you can exist in this permanent nirvana. Uh, other religions say that you actually get your own planet, but it's separate and distinct from God. Here's what I want you to see this morning, is that the benefits, the rewards of being united with Jesus Christ and a saving, saving relationship go above and beyond every other religion. In fact, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that the love of the God of the Bible, it's epic. It's legendary. It goes above and beyond even our wildest dreams and wildest expectations. And so we're going to read 1 John 2.28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And we're going to read John as he lists out, outlines the benefits, the above and beyond rewards of having a relationship with Christ. If you could read with me. It says this, And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him 
and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him is purified as he himself is pure. So just to give you a little context, if you want to know what the author, John, is really trying to do right now, he's channeling, all right, his inner infomercial host, okay? Do you guys ever watch the infomercials, maybe late at night, in between football games, all right? But very often, this host comes on, and he's pitching a product, right? It might be a vacuum cleaner. It might be the gazelle, right? Some piece of exercise equipment. It might be a kitchen appliance. And usually what they do is they present, right, the product. And just when you get to a point where you say, man, it can't get any better, right? It's too good to be true. What do they say next? But wait, there's more, right? And then they slash the price. And then they say, but wait, there's more, and we're going to give you an extra frying pan. But wait, there's more. And John is doing the exact same thing. And what he's doing is he's actually holding a product before us. He's saying, this is, these are the benefits of having a relationship with Christ. And it goes beyond just having your sins forgiven. And it goes beyond just being saved. And John outlines benefit after benefit. And he says, but wait, there's more. In fact, John gives us four specific rewards of having a relationship with Christ. First, we have a new father. Second, we receive a new birth. Third, we receive a new body. And fourth, we lead a new life. So walk with me, all right, as we go through these benefits. First, we receive a new father. If you've been paying attention, all right, John continually addresses his audience as what? As Children, right? And this is how this section begins. He calls us little children because John is speaking to the church, to believers. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says that we are called children of God. And what John is explaining and unpacking right here is the doctrine of adoption, all right? He's talking about spiritual adoption. He, and spiritual adoption is essentially this, is that God has chosen me in love to be his child. That's what it means to be adopted. I'm chosen by God in love to be his child. And John says right here that we are called children, past tense. And so here's what that means. We're not striving to become children. We're not hoping, assuming, attempting, wishing we can be children. What are we? We are children. And and John is saying that we are a part, we are members of the family of God. And so therefore, if God is our father, his love for us is the same affection that he would have for a natural child. In other words, the same affection that God has for you and me is the same affection he has for Jesus Christ. And here's what's amazing. You can't lose this status. If you truly, authentically have a relationship with Christ, are a child of God, no amount of misbehavior, trouble, and selfishness can jeopardize this status. Let me give you an example, all right? Before I came to know the Lord, I was a pretty rebellious kid, all right? I made some bad decisions, all right? 
This isn't, this isn't the worst thing I've ever done, but this might be one of the silliest things I've ever done, all right? In high school, all right, the epitome of like high school rebellion was just smoking, all right? This is what we did in our, in our high school. And so I remember like one night, it was a Friday night, and I was hanging out with my friends, all right? And I told my parents, all right, that we were going to a basketball game. But instead, we went to somebody's house, and we just smoked all night because we thought that was cool and rebellious, Okay. And so I got home at about 2 a.m., and my parents were, stay, were, were still up, and they confronted me. All right, and here's the thing about smoking. If you smoke long enough, you eventually what? You smell like smoke, all right? So, so I had no defense, no alibi, and they confronted me and said, they said, Ben, where have you been? So well, I've been at the basketball game. They said, Ben, will you smell like smoke, all right? This might be one of the most ignorant lies, all right, I've ever committed, but I looked my dad straight in the eye. I said, Dad, we played an away game. And it was this country town, and it was really backwoods. And believe it or not, at this high school basketball arena, they had a smoking section, all right? And I was sitting right next to the smoking section, and that's why I smell like smoke. I was at the basketball game, all right? And my dad is a very patient man, all right? He should have slapped me right there in, the mo- in that moment, all right? And he said, really, they had a smoking section at a high school basketball game. I said, yes, sir, I promise. And he said, okay. He's like, I can't argue with this kid, all right? But here's the thing. Here's how my dad didn't respond. He didn't just say, look, Ben, that's it. I'm taking my last name back. You've officially crossed the line. Your privileges as my son have been revoked. You are no longer a Weber. No, he didn't do that because I was a permanent. For better or worse, he was stuck with me, right? (laughs) You can't lose this status. And so here's how this should affect us. John mentions two reasons. First off, we should have confidence, and it leads to a confusion in the world. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, we have confidence, and we don't shrink from God. So because we are children of God, we approach him with boldness and confidence. Now think about this. There is something unique about the relationship between a child and their parent that leads to a real discernible boldness. For example, all right, if tonight, if I'm sleeping and it's 3 a.m., all right, I'm getting some good sleep, some REM sleep, I'm just passed out in a coma, and Leah elbows me, and she wakes me up, and she says, Ben, I'm thirsty, all right, I'm not sick, I'm not dying, I'm just thirsty, and will you get me some water, all right? Now, I know there's a lot more spiritual, Christ-like husbands, right, in in the congregation, but more than likely, I would just say, look, Leah... You know where the water is, all right? You know where the cups are. I pay the bills, all right? You got water, all right? Go get it. But look, think about this. If my daughter starts screaming, all right? If she starts yelling, if she is begging, all right, for a drink of water, I'm going to go bring it to her because there's something about the relationship, all right, between a son and daughter and their father. They have amazing access to their parents. And this is why Jesus instructs us to pray our father, You ever thought about that? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus leads off, and he doesn't say our King, our Creator, our Lord, our Sustainer. All those those terms would be theologically correct. Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. Because what Jesus is trying to emphasize is that you have amazing access, confidence, and boldness when you come to God in prayer. So we should have confidence before God, but this also leads to confusion. It leads to confusion in the world. It says right here in verse 20, 20, I'm not sure what verse this is. I think it's verse 2. It says, the world does not know us. 
because the world did not know him. And the reality is if you're part of the family of God, the world won't understand you. The world might be confused by the way you talk, the way you live, the values that you demonstrate. I experience this confusion on a regular basis, right? When I go to the office and and people are talking about the Game of Thrones episode and I explain why I abstain from watching this TV show. Or I have to explain to people why I give my hard-earned money away to ministries and churches and I try to give generously. When I explain to people why I don't gossip or slander or talk behind people's backs, I'm met with a look of confusion. The reality is if you're a part of the family of God, the world will be confused. Now here's what's interesting. Look in verse 1. Do you see what John says? He says, see the love of God the Father. That word see means behold. It means look at it, drink it in, gaze at it. Basically what John is saying, he's saying underline this, highlight it, don't miss this. Here's what John is calling us to do. He's calling us to, in a sense, do what we do, all right, when you're driving down a highway and you see a wreck on the road. Because here's the thing, it doesn't matter how late you are for an appointment, how fast you're driving, all right, whenever you see an accident on the shoulder, what do you do? You slow down, right? You pump the brakes. And John is saying, look, you might be speeding through this passage, You might be cruising through this scripture, but you need to pump the brakes. You need to slow down. You need to gaze and behold and meditate on the fact that God is your father. He's saying, don't miss this. Now, keep in mind, who is the author? Well, it's John, but John has been a disciple of Jesus. John has been a saint for decades. He's been in ministry for a long time. He is old. He's advanced in years. And guess what still moves John? The simple, basic doctrine of adoption. He still can't go get over the fact that he used to be an enemy of God, and now he's a child of God. And so here's what I would remind you, especially you older believers, you, you veteran saints, those of you who've been walking with God for decades and years, do you still feel this? Does this truth still move you because here's what we see John doing he is writing about the love of God he is writing about the above and beyond fatherly love of God and inevitably what he does what he does is he puts his pen down and he just starts to experience it he feels it he senses it this truth moves from his head to his heart are you still moved by this truth does the adopting love of God still move you all right, so not only do we receive a new, fa- new father, right? But wait, there's more. We also receive a new birth. See, John says we're not just called children, we also are what? We are children. And this is a reference to the doctrine of regeneration. All right, oftentimes in the South, we call this being born again. And I'll just say this, there is a lot of confusion in our culture, specifically in the South, about what it means to be born again. Now, as I interact with different people on campus, in the community, here's basically what I've discerned, all right, about the Southern culture. We we generally think that there's like three ways to live, all right? So on one hand, there's the non-Christians, right? The atheists, the agnostics, those who rebel and hate God. And then right in the middle, there's the Christians. And these are the pretty good people, all right? They don't do anything too bad. They go to church on most Sundays, They treat people the right way, and they're just generally good people, and they're avoiding hell. And then way over here, we have the born-again Christians, all right? These are the Jesus freaks, right? 
the pastors, the missionaries, those who are way too serious about their Bible, the varsity believers, right? The campus outreach leaders. But here's the thing, all right? That category, the, the middle category does not exist. So just in the same way, if you approach my wife, all right, and you said, look, Leah, you're looking good. Hey, congratulations. I see that you are semi-pregnant, okay? How do you think she'd respond, all right? First off, she'd probably be insulted, all right? Somehow, some way. But more than that, she'd be confused because there's no such category as being semi-pregnant, am I right? You're either what? You're either pregnant or you're not. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, Jesus affirms that you are either not a Christian or you're born again. There's no middle category. In fact, in John 3, 3, he says this, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 1, 12, Jesus says this, to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. So you can't experience heaven unless you're born again. And you only are a children of God unless you believe in Christ. Jesus says there's only two ways to live. You're either for God or you're what? You're against them. There's only two types of spiritual DNA. There's only two last names and there's only two families. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the enemy. And so what does it mean to be born again? Well, being born again refers to a spiritual rebirth. It, it means when I'm born again, it's not physical, but I'm given a new heart and new desires. And no longer are my deepest and strong desires for myself and for sin, but now my deepest and strong desires, once I've been regenerated, they're for God and his glory. And here's what's really interesting. John lays out the order. He says that rebirth precedes obedience. Did you pick up on that? That you must first be regenerated before you can lead a righteous lifestyle. And oftentimes we get it twisted. We think if I can just be a good person, if I can work really hard, then God will reward me with, by being, by, by, with regeneration or being born again. But Jesus says it's the opposite. He says, first you must be born again. First you must be reborn, and then you lead a righteous lifestyle. Obedience is a result of being born again. And so do you understand what John is saying? He's saying not only are we called children of God, you actually are children of God. He says that legally, legally you're a child, but actually you're a child. He says that you have the status as a son, but you also have the nature of a son. Not only do you receive a new name, you also receive a new heart. And can I just say this? You probably picked up on this. I like to give stories and analogies. All right, there is no human analogy to describe what is occurring right here in this verse. There's nothing. And you know what? There's a reason for that. Because John says right here in verse 1, he says, see what kind of love. Now, here's what's really interesting about that word kind. That word kind in the original language literally means foreign. It means from another country, from another world, from another planet. And what John is saying right here is this kind of love, the world has never known it. This kind of love is an alien love. It's an out-of-this-world love. All right? 
Recently, I had a foreign experience. I had an alien experience, an out-of-this-world meal, to be exact. I was up in St. Louis. I was taking a seminary class, and one of the guys in my class was from South Korea, all right? His name was Sun Young. And I hit it off with Sun Young, and we started talking. And one day, he said, Ben, I'd like to invite you to eat breakfast with me. So that sounds great. I'll meet you in the cafeteria. So I show up thinking, you know, we might get a biscuit. You know, we might get a bowl of oatmeal. We might hang out and drink some coffee. And when I walked in the cafeteria, very quickly I realized that we weren't meeting for breakfast. He was actually cooking me breakfast. But not an American breakfast, all right, biscuits and gravy. It was a traditional Korean breakfast. So I looked at the table, all right, and there was a bowl of ramen noodles. There was a bowl of sticky rice. There was a big bowl of seaweed something called kimchi, and about four or five different things I can't pronounce, all right? And it was just waiting on me, this big spread. And what we did is we just piled it on into the same bowl, and I watched this guy eat at 7 in the morning, all right, a bowl of seaweed, all right, with, with, with chopsticks. And so just being polite, I did the same thing, and I tried to suck it down. I'm going to be honest, all right, it was tough. You should never eat ramen noodles, all right, at 7 in the morning. I barely got it down. But here's the point. I could eat ramen noodles every morning for the next five years, and I would never develop a taste for ramen noodles. I'd never become comfortable with seaweed at seven in the morning. And the same way John is saying, you can't get used to this love. It's from another world. It is foreign. Don't become numb to it. This isn't commonplace. This isn't natural. This is something that is above and beyond. Because what John is describing is more than adoption. He's talking about new birth. Think about it this way. My wife and I, we can adopt a child, but we can't cause a child to be born again. And we can adopt a child and love it and raise it and nurture it and discipline it. But the reality is this. That child will always maintain the temperament, the race, and the DNA of his biological parents. And most often, this is a good thing, all right? Th th think about, you guys know the Paquettes, right? Matt and Noah. Noah's the cute little kid who always speaks up on Sundays. So Noah, you get a shout out now. There he is, all right? <laughs> this shouldn't shock most people, but Noah all right, was adopted by Matt and Ashley. And Matt and Ashley have raised Noah. And by the grace of God, all right, Noah all right, will not take on the characteristics and the DNA of his dad, right? <laughs> If you know Matt, all right, Matt is middle-aged. He's got that great dad bod, all right, but he's a little lanky, gangly, or not very graceful and athletic. And if you see Noah, man, he's an athlete. All right, he's ripped. He's smooth. All right, and by the grace of God, he will not inherit the DNA of Matt because Matt can't change his DNA. He can't change his physical nature. But guess what? Guess what? When we're spiritually adopted, God can change our nature. And God does change our nature. So this adoption is not just legal. It's not just paperwork. Do you see what John is saying? No, God moves in to your heart. He gives you his Holy Spirit, and you start to take on the family resemblance. And this is a theme that's all throughout 1 John. In 1 John 3, 9, it says that God's seed abides in him. And he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So we receive a new nature. And this doesn't mean we become divine. 
or we become like God, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit enters us and slowly but surely grows and develops. And so John is simply saying, look, look what's in you. You have been born of God. So we receive a new father, but wait, there's more. We receive a new birth, but wait, there's more. And one day we will receive a new body. This is what John means when he says that we are children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So far, John has told us who we are. But now he shifts his focus to the future and he says, this is what we will be either when we die and go and be with Jesus or when Jesus returns. What John is unpacking right here is the doctrine of glorification. But here's what you got to understand. John is saying, brothers, sisters, children, don't you realize that one of the greatest gifts, the greatest rewards of your salvation is yet to come? Have you ever thought about that? One of the greatest benefits of being saved, you haven't even experienced it yet. It's unrealized. There's two verses in 1 Corinthians that shed a lot of light on our glorified bodies. The first is 1 Corinthians 2.9. In this verse, Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In 1 Corinthians 13.12, he says, One day, or excuse me, he says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. See, there's a lot we don't know about our glorified bodies. There's a lot we don't know about this state of glorification. Because apart from the resurrected Jesus, we've never interacted with someone who has a glorified body. But do you see what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 2? He's saying it's even better than you can hope, dream, or dare to imagine. And here's what we do know, is that when we're glorified, when we go to be with Christ, when Christ returns, we will live, exist in perfect conformity to Jesus Christ. Meaning there will be no sin, no shame, no guilt, no insecurity, no pain, no weakness in our bodies. Now you got to understand this. Our bodies will be spiritual. That does not mean they won't be physical. It means they'll be completely controlled, driven, motivated and guided by the Holy Spirit. But we will have real, physical, flesh and bone bodies. And so for those who die young, in heaven, for eternity, you will have a fully mature body. For those who die old, your body will be made new. For those of you on this earth who can't speak or mute in heaven, for eternity, you'll have a beautiful voice. For those of you who are physically or mentally handicapped, in heaven, for eternity, you have a perfectly functioning mind and body. For those of you whose backs and joints just ache and you groan every morning when you wake up, you'll be able to run and sprint and jump in heaven for eternity. See, when we receive our glorified bodies, we will fully, completely, totally be glorified. And you know what the best thing is? Right? Not only will we be like Jesus, we will actually get to see and interact Jesus. We'll receive a new body. But wait, there's more. Last point. See, when you really understand that God is our Father, that our heart has been changed, that one day we'll receive a new body, it should affect the way you live. And that's what John says with our final point. He says we should lead a new life. 
In the final verse, John says that everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What John is saying is that we have a new motivation to obey, that we should desire, we should pursue purity. And purity means that I'm free from contamination, that I'm free from sin. So do you understand what's going on here? The more we think about the future, the more we understand, the more we hope for our glorified bodies, it should encourage us in our day-to-day, in our everyday lives, to be holy. See, the enemy wants nothing more than to convince us that we're unwanted, that we're unloved. The enemy wants nothing more than to tempt us and make us believe that we are essentially existing, living as orphans in the world. So what does God want more than anything? He wants to remind us. He wants to remember that you are children and that I'm a kind and loving father. And the more we meditate, the more we behold, the more we see the love of the father, the less we'll sin. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor, said this. He says, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin was a trifle, which means no big deal. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned I could ever kicked against him. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion... I beat upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me and sought my good. This is what John is calling us to do. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Look, behold the love of the Father. And I believe that John is not only speaking to us, but he's also speaking to who? He's speaking to himself. He's reminding himself of the above and beyond nature of God the Father. And here's the reality. If a saint like John, if an author of Scripture like John can forget the above and beyond nature of God's love, what does that mean for you and me? We'll forget it. We don't remember it. This is why it's so important to build in daily, weekly rhythms and practices of simply seeing and beholding the love of God the Father. This is why we come to church on Sundays. Because you hear a pastor break down the word and remind you of the above and beyond love of God. We sing, we join in singing about the love of God. This is why we go to community groups. Because we talk and we eat and we discuss the above and beyond benefits of God the Father. This is why we read our Bibles and pray on a daily basis. Because we're speaking with confidence and boldness to our Father. This is how we behold the love of the Father. So here's where we'll end. Because you got to think about this. If we can receive above and beyond rewards, if we can receive above and beyond benefits, it had to have an above and beyond cost, right? There had to be an above and beyond sacrifice. And there was. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, John says this, Behold the kind of the love of the Father that He has what? He has given to us. Here's what's really interesting. This word given, it means lavish. It means bestow. See, very often in our culture, we don't talk about giving love. We talk about what? Being in love. Because in our culture, we're all about the warm, fuzzy feeling, the sentiment, the emotion of love. But what John is describing 
is giving love. This is covenant love. This is real love. So if you want this type of love, if you want the above and beyond benefits of God, guess what? First off, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't strive for it. The only way that you can receive it, because it's a gift, is just ask for it. And so God simply demands this. He says, look, if you're willing to confess your sin, admit that you're a sinner, admit that you have rebelled against me, and surrender your life, I will give you this love. You can have these rewards. We can't earn it. It can only be received. But also this word given, it means covenant. It means permanent. It means life-changing love. The closest thing we have as a picture of given love are the vows that a husband and wife take on their wedding day. See, on that day, they're not simply expressing that they are in love, but they are actually making a covenant. They're taking a vow that says, I will give you love, right? For better or worse, for sicker or poor, till death does me part. And when they take those vows, when they give their love to each other, they also put on a ring. There's a symbol of giving love. There's a reminder. There's a visual. And God the Father has also given us a visual. He's given us a picture. He's given us a ring that reveals his given love. All right? And it's not a piece of jewelry. It's the cross. It's the cross. Because God's love for us was not just sentiment. It wasn't just warm, fuzzy feelings. Now, he has a natural affection for us because we are his children. But it's a covenant love. And here's what you got to remember. If we're going to receive the above and beyond benefits of God, we also have to remember the above and beyond cost of that love. Because in order for God to bring us into his family, in order for us, for God to call a son and daughter, he lost his son on the cross. And I want, I want to shift your attention. We've been focusing on what we receive from God. But now I want to ask you to focus on what God gave up. It cost God everything. See, God the Father made an above and beyond sacrifice so that we can have an above and beyond life with him for eternity. All right. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for the benefits of having a relationship with Christ. This goes far beyond my sins are forgiven. It goes far beyond just the cliche of just saying I'm saved. For those who are in Christ, we have a new father. We have new hearts. One day we'll receive new bodies. Lord, I pray that we be men and women who lead new lives. I ask for those in this room who do not know you, who are not children of God, God, I pray that they would want these rewards. They would want these benefits. I ask that they would confess their sin and surrender their lives to you. God, we thank you so much for everything that you've given us. It is beyond our wildest dreams. I pray that we would leave lives that are full of just thankfulness and joy and gratitude because of not only of what you've given us, but what it costs you to give us these rewards. Father, we praise you in your name. Amen.